the rush to provide answers to students rather than helping them understand how to critically ask questions is the root of all kinds of mischief. How Thucydides is misread, how in many instances quoted without being read, and why that matters in politics. Welcome back to the Soch Podcast, where nothing human is alien to us. I'm your producer, Captain Haziano, and today we're pleased to bring you a conversation between two amazing scholars, Colonel Retired Jay Parker and Dr. Scott Silverstone. For this episode, Dr. Silverstone interviewed Colonel Parker about his recently published book, Restoring Thucydides, Testing Familiar Lessons and Deriving New Ones. The two discussed topics such as why Thucydides is so frequently misunderstood and misrepresented, whether the Melian dialogue really was a validation of realism as is commonly believed, and what the real lessons are that we should be drawing from classical scholars like Thucydides, Machiavelli, and Sun Tzu. All right, hope you enjoyed the episode. Hello and welcome. My name is Scott Silverstone. I'm here today with Dr. Jay Parker, retired Army colonel, former director of the International Relations Program at West Point. He has a PhD from Columbia University, and he is currently the Distinguished Professor and Major General Fox Connor Chair of International Security Studies at National Defense University. Today, Jay is joining me for a conversation on his new book, co-authored with Dr. Andrew Novo, Restoring Thucydides, Testing Familiar Lessons and Deriving New Ones, which is out from Cambria Press. Um, and of course, as the title implies, uh, this is a book about the great 5th century BC Athenian historian Thucydides, and his classic work on the Peloponnesian War between Athens, Sparta, and their respective allies. I will mention before we start our conversation that both Jay and I are, of course, uh, employees of the uh, United States government. So everything that we say during this conversation really reflects our own personal views as scholars uh, and does not reflect the views of our respective institutions of higher education, the U.S. Army, the U.S. Defense Department, or the U.S. government. So with that, thanks for joining me, Jay. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. Really appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be with you as always. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, particularly talking about Thucydides. It's a Indeed. Uh, classical Greece. It's a subject that's near and dear to both of our hearts. I, I was really happy to hear that you had this project underway. Oh, thank you so much. It's uh, It's kind of scary to calculate how many hours you and I will never get back because we spent them talking about uh, the old Greek Thucydides. Yeah, well, it's, it's time um, well spent. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And it ultimately resulted in this book. So it's all good. Um, you know, I've had the chance to read this book twice. I read the book uh, when it was under review for publication. And then, of course, uh, I read the book when it came out in its final version. And, you know, what really struck me as original about this book, and, and of course, we're going to pull back the curtain in terms of what your particular take on Thucydides is. I was really struck by the fact that you and your co-author, coming from different academic disciplines, really leveraged your unique experience to produce something that, frankly, you don't see most books on Thucydides or this time frame do. You're coming from international relations and political science. Um, you're reading the text with those kinds of big questions and international relations theory in mind and international history, whereas Andrew Novo is a classicist. Um, he is looking at the ancient Greek texts and uh, how his field interprets 
the meaning and the contribution of what we uh, tend to bring forward uh, as we look at uh, these these old authors. And, and frankly, I found it to be a, a very uh, productive collaboration. And I could see the signs of your respective disciplines working through uh, your discussion of, of the different topics that uh, you tackled. So uh, I just want to start with a, a broader question. What was it that inspired the two of you to take on this project? When we first started working together and, and just having various casual conversations, and uh, I discovered that he was uh, uh, originally a classicist, and he discovered that I've been teaching Thucydides for multiple decades now, we launched into kind of a mutual gripe fest about how Thucydides is misread, how in many instances quoted without being read, and why that matters in his case to the study of history and in my case to the study of international politics. For me, it was a nice revelation because I'd been grumbling about these things for a long time. And along comes someone who is a, a classics scholar by profession who actually can read the thing in Greek. And when he validated what I said and what my complaints were, and I finally realized, well, maybe I'm not crazy, or at least I'm not crazy about this. Uh, it was real motivation to start assembling our thoughts in some sort of a, a coherent manner. So uh, we shared our various points of view and uh, had a chance to teach them out in the classroom and did a couple of conference papers where we got surprisingly to us very strong positive feedback in a couple of different fora. And uh, then we just happened to have a chance meeting with Jeffrey Byrne, who is our brilliant editor at Cambria Press, uh, former editor of the security studies series at, uh, at Stanford Press. And Jeffrey's been around a while. And Jeffrey also understands this topic as well. And suddenly it was not just the two of us griping about how people don't read Thucydides, it was three of us, and one of them was an editor who works for a publisher, and the next thing you know, we've got a book. Uh, so that's what kind of generated the the book in the first place. It, it, the seeds for it were planted long, long ago, uh, because as you well know, and I'm sure many of the listeners are very aware, it, you cannot turn around in a classroom involving uh, ancient history or even early modern history or a classroom in international relations and politics and not at some point bump into Thucydides. Go through the introductory texts, the ones that are most commonly used at college and university level, and you will see Thucydides cited again and again and again. Uh, go through the uh, the major classic, new classic, I guess would be one way to describe them, works of, of our generations from international relations scholars, and you'll find Thucydides in the footnotes again and again and again. In fact, uh, there was a study done some years ago, which we cite in the book, uh, that says that uh, Thucydides is one of the top works still prescribed on college syllabi in philosophy classes, in history classes, in, in politics classes, uh, not just in classes on ancient Greeks and the classics. Uh, so you, you cannot avoid having contact with this work. And, uh, and I go back, back far more years than I care to acknowledge. Uh, and I can remember getting snippets of this way back when, but it wasn't until 
pretty late in my career as uh, an academic and uh, my life that I really began to drill down on this. And that's what kind of motivated me to provide some sort of insight to other people who would be like me, who don't have the advantage of Andrew having quite literally grown up with this book, uh, but scholars and more importantly, uh, on a certain level, practitioners who often cite Thucydides or rely on what they think are the insights they've gained uh, from it. If we could put together a book that would speak to that audience uh, and help maybe move beyond this challenge, this problem, uh, then we thought we'd be making a, a reasonably decent contribution to the scholarly literature and to uh, higher education. You know, I love uh, the way you describe this mutual gripe fest, and, yeah. and I think I think you and I have both uh, shared. Oh, we have, yes, <laughs> over time. So, take us back to the kinds of the the ways that IR scholars, the way that college syllabi, the way that popular commentators, whoever picks up Thucydides, refers to Thucydides, tells us what they think his insights are. Mm-hmm. What were the kinds of things that that really um, bothered you, that that you found um, so intolerable that you just actually had to sit down and, and write a book? Well, there's several things. First of all, most writings on Thucydides are stripped of context. Okay, this is what Thucydides wrote, but number one, was it something Thucydides actually said as an observation or an analysis, or was it Thucydides quoting a, a participant in those events? There's a problem in a couple of instances, and in fact, numerous instances in the book, where individuals uh, have since quoted approvingly and said, well, Thucydides tells us dot, 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 dot. And you go back to the text and find out, no, it was Thucydides quoting somebody else. And oh, by the way, in the particular instance Thucydides was reporting, it did not end well. So why are we using this to validate actions that we take now? the larger context is missing. And not just the larger context of say, a specific event like the the Melian Dialogue or the invasion of Sicily. What's missing is the larger context of how international politics was being played out at that time. What's missing often is a discussion of how domestic politics was being played out in that time. So those are some of the omissions right off the bat. The other problem is you will get a quote that will say approvingly, well, as we all know from Thucydides, the the one classic example that uh, I've used over and over again and that we discuss in some depth in the book is the line for the Melian Dialogue. Uh, The strong do what they will and the weak suffer what they must. And uh, of course, for most realists, that's kind of presented as a, see, there you go, that's the bottom line. But if you've actually read the Melian Dialogue, if you know how the the Athenians got to the point of the Melian Dialogue, and perhaps more importantly, if you know the chapters that immediately follow the Melian Dialogue, it puts a very different picture on it. Uh, The idea that there is this dialogue going on between uh, the peace-loving neutral citizens uh, of the distant island that shouldn't be engaged in this war, namely the island of Milos, 
and these uh, bloodthirsty, power-hungry uh, Athenians who have absolutely no motive but to exercise their brutality, uh, first of all, that characterization is factually wrong. Uh, Milos, as you know, is one of the few people I know who's actually been there, uh, is uh, on what was at the time uh, major sea lanes uh, in the Aegean. And the position of that island was such that if Athens was going to have some reasonable operational security uh, in the course of this war, particularly given how much of what we think of as Greece at that time was actually on the coast of Asia Minor, uh, well, there is no way that you can pretend this island doesn't matter. Add to that the fact that there is some evidence that uh, if not, in fact, a colony of Sparta, Milos was, uh, in fact, linked to Sparta by long, long ties. So the idea that the uh, Milians are going to have nothing to do with Sparta just doesn't play out by looking at it. But more importantly, if you actually read the dialogue and you actually read what Thucydides has written, the Spartans, do, or, or rather the Milians, don't even make that case. Uh, what you have in the end is the Malians saying, we're unimportant, don't deal with us. But uh, by the way, if anything goes wrong, we know we can rely on our allies, the Spartans. Now, you can argue with the uh, military wisdom of being an island and relying on uh, a city-state known primarily for land power and uh, and say that that may not be the wisest choice, but it, but it was still a choice. Uh, Furthermore, as the, the dialogue goes forward and it moves from conversation to clash of arms, the, the, the battle between Athens and Milos is not an immediate pushover. Uh, the Malians fight and fight quite well for quite a long time. And the ultimate victory of the Athenians in that conflict came not because of the superiority of their, uh, of their military capabilities, I mean, bear in mind, they'd been at war for a long time. They were drained of resources and capabilities, and they were fighting at the far ends of their lines of communication. Uh, the Million Dialogue, Thucydides' own language says, owing to some treachery inside the walls, uh, what allowed the Athenians to enter in and destroy Milos was uh, uh, treachery and treason inside Milos. Uh, there were points in the course of that war where the Athenians had, in fact, withdrawn from Milos, uh, and it was not really clear that they were determined to come back and finish that off. So you have a conflict that plays out far differently than many people think, uh, that it was not the strong uh, doing what they will, but the so-called weak, who really were not necessarily that weak, uh, were the ones who took the decisive action. And then perhaps most important of all, what comes after the uh, the clash in Milos, uh, which was, by way of background, kind of a, a gradual, represented a gradual escalation uh, of Athenian actions over the course of the war. They didn't necessarily start out expressing the kinds of things that were in the dialogue, and it, arguably not consistent with, with the strategy that Pericles set for them. But what immediately follows is the incredibly tragic hubris uh, of Athens' invasion of uh, of Sicily, and the uh, the battles that end with uh, the Syracusans just absolutely crushing Athens, and leading to what 
would be a, a path of collapse from which Athens would never recover. Uh, arguably, Athens and and the Greek city-states as a whole uh, did not recover any kind of true autonomy uh, and uh, autonomous power until the 19th century. Uh, so saying that the Milian Dialogue is validation and proof of, uh, of certain perspectives, largely uh, realist, and a whole other podcast could be about how realism is misinterpreted, but let's let's agree that at least uh, the casual realists use this to validate their point of view. To do that and base it on Thucydides is to put yourself on a very uh, shaky, unsound platform of evidence. And, and that goes to the to the larger point that Andrew and I try and make. At the end, you may, in fact, have sound reasons for drawing lessons that support some of the modern theories in international relations. And they may be perfectly valid uh, theories. And we don't make judgment on that. We don't come out in the book and say, therefore, because of our conclusions, realism is wrong or uh, classic liberalism is wrong or constructivism is wrong. What we say is if you're using Thucydides as a foundation for building those theories, you need to go back and re-examine that foundation. That leads to a whole bunch of larger questions about how we develop theory. Are there other texts out there besides Thucydides that suffer the same fate? Uh, what are the consequences of drawing on uh, a work like Thucydides to come up with things like traps that don't exist? or pithy sayings that can be put in memes or on uh, PowerPoint slides that are in fact inaccurate or wrong. What are the consequences of that? Uh, what happens when people learn those lessons uh, and the lessons are rooted in falsehood? You know, you make two really important points uh, throughout the book and uh, just in the way you described some of the uh, misuse, the misuses of, of Thucydides. Um, and just to highlight this uh, once again for our listeners, uh, what I was so happy to see in this book is the fact that you do take on this, this habit of citing Thucydides as though Thucydides says X, Thucydides says Y, but you're absolutely right. Rarely does Thucydides himself ever weigh in specifically with his own specific viewpoint on what should or should not be done in a particular situation. He's really just telling a story. He's trying to capture um, how different key actors were thinking at a particular point in time, mm -hmm. and he's he's reporting to us. And you know, I I, uh, I love this point about missing context. And the Melian dialogue uh, example is so important because you know, as as you know, it's probably the most widely cited. It's the most mm -hmm. widely assigned part of the text mm -hmm. to students completely taken out of context. And, you know, just to, to double down on your point, I find Thucydides to be so much more useful than we give him credit for in the classroom oh, yeah. and the way we talk about him. Because when you look at the structure of these key moments in the book, he'll set up a, a problem, a key decision moment where one of the key right. actors faces a dilemma. And Thucydides doesn't rush to judgment. He doesn't immediately go to, well, this is clearly the right way to handle this problem. He very carefully presents two alternative views. He has orators yes. or he, he recreates yes. this way of looking at the problem, and they'll have the alternative way of looking at the problem. 
and we he tells us what the decision was, why they made the decision, and then for context, he tells us what happens. We get to evaluate the consequences of the choices that they made, right. and the Melian dialogue is is a great example of this. It's not just the Athenians spouting off these hardcore power philosophy bromides. Right. Right. The Melians are presenting a very sophisticated set of arguments that frankly should be taken seriously um right. and at the and at the end of the day you're right you know so here the most probably the most frequently cited quote as you stated in this book is the strong do what they will the weak suffer what they must but right. at the end of the standoff it wasn't athenian strength that brought the millions down as you said it was treachery within the walls it nobody was the millions themselves yes. so so why don't we read it to the why this is a question for you why don't we read it to the end the very end of that that dialogue and contemplate why did it actually end this way was it power or was it something different well, that goes to one of the larger questions we try to pose in the in the book and that we hope is, is something taken from what we wrote going forward. Why do we do this with Thucydides? Why do we do it with Machiavelli? Why do we do it with Clausewitz? Uh, why do we do it with Herodotus? Why do, you could just go on and on and on uh, and cite the authors whose work we uh, approvingly, sometimes even lovingly, uh, used to convey a lesson and to justify a, a, a prescription, if you will. Um, and without reading it in its entirety, uh, you, you've quite literally missed the point. But it's not just a, a problem confined to the reading of, the teaching of, uh, the, the use of uh, Thucydides. You can find it in almost every major substantial work. Um, one of the points that, that we try to make about Thucydides, for example, is, is there is a common feeling. You and I have both been to multiple International Studies Association conferences and American Political Science Association conferences uh, and have heard Thucydides and similar authors um, uh, sort of uh, thrown around. Uh, without having any sort of understanding or appreciation of the richness for the text and used to validate realism. And an argument we have made is, yeah, you can use history of the Peloponnesian War to teach realism. You can also use history of the Peloponnesian War to teach uh, organizational politics. It has a very, very rich a uh, treasure load of material with which you can teach political psychology. There are dimensions of, of realism and political economy that are very, very prominent in uh, Thucydides. Just the, the whole formation and foundation and basis of uh, the, the, uh, the Delian League, uh, rooted in uh, political uh, economics. The, the list just goes on and on and on of elements and, and various prisms uh, through which you can look at international politics that can be better revealed by taking Thucydides as a whole as a case study. Now, a host of reasons that would probably require an entire season of podcast 
for why the field, the discipline of international politics, and Andrew would probably tell you the discipline of history, uh, does this in the way we present this material, particularly the way we present material to introductory courses. Uh, and the end result is you have lots of people wandering around out there whose sole introduction to international politics and the complexity and richness of it may be one course they took many years ago. And the one thing that sticks in their mind is this pithy quote from the Melian Dialogue, like so many other quotes. Uh, I've often said that if, if you take anyone who has ever studied political science in this country, find them in a, in a deep sleep, and you startle them by shouting, uh, where you stand, and they will burst out of their sleep go and go, uh, depends on where you sit, uh, because it's one of those quotes that we, and I use my myself in this, over time have been guilty of doing to our students without saying, okay, sit down and read this through. What are the larger points that you see here? Because this is not Thucydides talking, and he's drawing in multiple voices, what do you get in the uh, in the contrast between how these different uh, views are are put together. Uh, one of the things that, well, two things I always come back to, and of course they, they come from my uh, uh, much loved and much treasured experience teaching SS 307. Uh, the first is, what are the four functions of theory? To describe, to explain, to predict, and to prescribe. With Thucydides, we have a work that does a very, very good job of describing and a good job of offering one explanation. The tendency, though, of those who teach this work, not in the social department, but in many other places, is to jump ahead to prescription and prediction when, in fact, that was not something Thucydides himself necessarily did. The second point that comes out of my experience in, in teaching SS 307 um, was the emphasis that we always put on the importance of multiple lenses. You are looking at a problem, a challenge in international politics, and if you look at it through one lens at one sort of a distance or magnification, certain important variables are going to be revealed, certain conclusions can be reached, but if you turn and look at it from the other side with a different magnification, uh, looking at it for different questions, you're going to get a different perspective and point of view. Ideally, we, not just SS307 instructors and 307 alum, but international relations teachers want our students to be able to go out into the world not as diehard, confirmed, absolutely doctrinaire realist or constructivist or Marxist or, or whatever. We want them to go out armed with the kinds of tools that help them understand what questions they should be asking. The rush to provide answers to students rather than helping them understand how to critically ask questions is the root of all kinds of mischief, not just for what happens when those students become scholars themselves, that small portion of a student audience, but for what happens when they become journalists, when they become members of the National Security Council, when they become senior officers in, in the United States military, when they become corporate executives, when they become directors of nonprofits. What we should be teaching and helping people to understand 
is the best way to assess what the real critical questions are that we should be asking when confronted with a, a challenge in international politics and what tools can be drawn on to help move towards a better understanding uh, and hopefully a, a workable answer to that question rather than looking at it and going, ah, I know exactly what this is. This is Milos all over again. So let's pick up on that point um, and focus on the specific value of studying Thucydides in a contemporary context. Uh, yeah. You stated it and you ha in the book you describe and provide some of the statistics that demonstrate mm -hmm. how widely subscribed and discussed Thucydides actually is um, yeah. on college syllabi, um, in literature, in public commentary. Mm -hmm. But one interpretation of your critique of this common reference back to Thucydides mm -hmm. today could be that you're challenging the value of studying Thucydides for a contemporary audience. So from, right. from your perspective, again, you have spent years studying Thucydides. You clearly find it of value as a scholar of IR. Mm -hmm. What is Thucydides' value to the study of IR today? Yeah, that's a very good question. And, and, it, and it is pretty fundamental to, uh, to what we wrote and why we wrote it. Part of it, as you say, is because Thucydides is everywhere. And even if we were to stop teaching it tomorrow, it's sufficiently embedded to kind of uh, that that work is sufficiently embedded to to carry on its influence for quite some time to come, uh, and, and history kind of plays that out. One little snippet that uh, Andrew, uh, our, my co-author, found was that on archaeological digs, when uh, works of written works are unearthed, uh, they tend to be from four or five different sources. Uh, among them, among the most prominent are. Uh, you know the the uh, the first uh, five chapters of the uh, the modern Bible, uh, the works of various uh, Greek uh, playwrights, and Thucydides. So this tendency to point students towards Thucydides goes back a couple of thousand years, uh, and even if we were to make an effort to rid ourselves of him, I th I think it is an addiction that would not quickly go away. And there have been publications that we've both seen recently that say, okay, enough with the Thucydides. Can we kind of get beyond that? The, the problem I have with it is every time someone makes that argument and says that we are so twisted and off base in our use of Thucydides, we should put them aside. And people say, yeah, yeah maybe. Well, the next day someone <laughs> pops up and says, but you know what Thucydides says? One of those things that kind of led Andrew and I to look at each other and go, okay, that's it. We've got to write this book was uh, Graham Allison's Thucydides Trap. Uh, I don't know Graham Allison personally. Uh, I think very highly of a lot of the great work he has done as a scholar. Um, and in this book, we do not say what he says ultimately about the future of U.S.-China relations is necessarily wrong. But what we're saying is, if you're attempting to come up with prediction and prescription based on Thucydides, and you're doing it in the way you're doing it, uh, which is to create things out of whole cloth or out of half quotes, uh, that's not just wrong, it, it's dangerous. So the reality is, if we were to put aside Thucydides or Machiavelli or any other uh, great work like this, 
the reality is the ways in which we teach and the ways in which we learn uh, about these subjects would force us to find some new Thucydides. Uh, I would predict that if all the copies of history of the Peloponnesian War were to vanish overnight and be wiped from people's memory, that within a year there would be someone else who would step up as an author and have their works corrupted, misquoted, misused. So at, at the end, the conclusion of reading our book, what we hope that readers are getting, what we hope those readers who are uh, scholars and teachers uh, take away and, and use in teaching their students, what we hope journalists, pundits, and policymakers take away and start using uh, as means of analyzing the work that they do, is that we have to be very careful in general about taking any work and stripping, of it, stripping it of its context, uh, of reading it for the pithy quotes, uh, as Clausewitz tells us, and Thucydides has a variation of this himself, becoming those people who only pick out kind of the high points, the, the low-hanging fruit, the most attractive, bright, shiny objects from this material that reaffirms, firms or confirms um, something that we already deeply hold, uh, if, if we cannot get beyond that with Thucydides or without him, uh, we're creating problems for ourselves and, uh, and only digging the problem deeper. Yeah, and it's a real shame that um, we don't make more space if you're going to assign Thucydides. It, it is a, a challenge to yeah. use a limited amount of time in the classroom. It is such an incredibly rich source uh, right. to, to figure out how much time you can carve out and then really what are those sections of the book beyond the pithy quotes that, that provide enough context um, in a few lessons to leave um, a more well-rounded appreciation of what Thucydides offers. Mm -hmm. um, and it is a shame that we we resort to these bumper sticker approaches and and sort of what we are trying to um, expose our students to and, and get them to think about. Because frankly, the larger story and the deep issues that he raises across the entire text are so meaningful. It's just such right. um, time well spent um, perhaps over years, right? And and I think maybe yeah. perhaps one of the things that we could do, carving out enough time in Thucydides, getting our students excited about some of the potential value, perhaps inspire them to keep the textbook and every so often go right. back to it and read a bit more. And um, hopefully right. after not too much time, you know, get the entire text under your belt and and over the years to come, go back and and reread and, and, and contemplate once again. And, and what we're not saying here, much as uh, it may sound that way, what we're not saying here uh, is that everyone should make a lifetime career uh, out of parsing Thucydides and collecting the different translations and comparing the variations of how the original Greek is interpreted. What we're saying is when you are learning works like Thucydides or anything that you're studying up to and including you know, the classic works of uh, of such great modern scholars as uh, Silverstone or Demarest or, or, or any of the other great writers, to look at the richness of what's being presented and to question and, and to use it to help formulate uh, the kinds of questions that you need going forward, to understand that 
over time, for example, in the studies of strategy and war, yes, there are very clear differences between, say, Sun Tzu and, and uh, Cautilia and um, Machiavelli and Hamilton and Clausewitz and, and Bernard Brody and whoever else you're reading. But if you read them carefully, certain variables appear again and again and again and again, no matter what point you are in history and no matter where in the world you are looking. Um, and those frame the kinds of questions that should be asked. Even if Sun Tzu and Clausewitz do not agree on the proper role uh, for civil-military relations in strategy, they both agree that thinking about the proper role of civil-military relations in strategy is important. So if, if you are carefully reading it in the only time you get to read the history of the Peloponnesian War or the Atra Shastra or, or whatever great work you're reading, read it carefully, read it objectively, be aware, be self-aware of, of whatever biases or preconceived notions you bring to the reading and, and be aware that there is a richer context that these words were written in and that that richer context will give you the tools that you need to, to strategize, to lead, uh, to, to analyze, and that those are the tools that you should rely on, not the bumper stickers. I think that's a great point to end our conversation on. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but uh, the key takeaway that uh, I'm going to remember from what you just said is that Thucydides is part of a canon. Thucydides yes. is part of a 2,500-year a, a effort to understand the complexities of security, of power, of leadership, of strategy. Um, he is part of a conversation, and yes. he speaks to common themes just like the other authors that you mentioned speak to, speak to common themes. Um, and there's a reason for that. And I think um, expanding our, our, our walk through the canon and, and getting the different uh, thinkers to talk to each other and, and, and create meaning for us and, and shape our conversations with each other as we confront uh, changes over time. Um, I think that's incredibly valuable. So, uh, Jay, thank you so much. Um, it was a great oh, pleasure you. to read your book. Um, I, I always enjoy talking to you. Uh, congratulations again, and uh, thanks for being here. My pleasure. When Soch calls, I'm always happy to answer. And that's a wrap for this edition of the Soch Podcast. If you liked what you heard and are eager for more, please consider subscribing to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever streaming service you're using. We'd also appreciate it if you're able to leave us a five-star review and recommend us to some of your friends. If you have any comments, suggestions, or critiques, you can email us at socheresearchlab at westpoint.edu. That's S-O-S-H, research, lab, at westpoint.edu. We're always looking to hear from our listeners, social alumni, and friends of the Soch Department. Thanks again to Colonel Parker and Dr. Silverstone for their hard work on this episode, and thanks as well to the West Point Band for allowing us to use their music. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and should not be seen as reflective of the official positions of the U.S. Military Academy, the United States Army, the Department of Defense, or any other government entity. This is Captain Haziano signing off. Hope to see you again soon.